Welcome to Science or Fiction, a podcast by sci-fi author Michael James Sharon. In this program, we'll be discussing science, fiction, and the often blurred spaces between the two. Here we try to dispel common scientific misconceptions by both Hollywood and the media, even that which is meant to be educational. My background includes a Bachelor of Science and Master of Arts in Physics with experience in both R&D and production. I hope you enjoy these podcasts, and if there are comments or input, please direct them via contact page for my website, michaelsbookcorner.com. Has anyone noticed the fixation archaeologists have with religion and death? No doubt these two were intertwined. Was it so great a preoccupation in the ancient world? Were they as predominant as today's scholars would have us believe? Sites such as Gobekli Tepe date back 12,000 years or more, so scant evidence exists regarding their culture. These large, sophisticated complexes were likely dated by carbon-14 decay, perhaps from trapped pollen grains or detritus from purposeful burial of the monuments. Nothing that complex simply springs up one day in the minds and hands of hunter-gatherers. No doubt there were stable farming communities existing long before any stone monuments existed. Such development must have taken thousands of years prior to these structures just to establish detailed astronomical observations. Every grand edifice is presented to us as a religious center with little to back it up. Perhaps it is necessary to clarify our definitions with respect to worship. From ancient times up to the present, there is little difference between the worship of gods and the obedience to rulers. Conveniently, the gods always have their human intermediaries. Throughout much of the written history, the lines were intentionally blurred by the powers that be. Pharaohs or other rulers had themselves proclaimed as living gods, or like Vespasian, skipped that step to do it themselves. Next to the conquerors, were the priests telling them what they wanted to hear. Everyone has to make a living. I suspect the priests began at the dawn of human association as shamans. These were the men and women with enough added brain power to keep the brutes at bay and the little people in line. It is a good guess that they were the first astronomers and record keepers. The rulers kept outsiders at bay for the price of unquestioned obedience priests propped up the rulers by predicting when to plant, when the floods would come, or when to expect an eclipse, convincing them to confiscate the greatest part of produce grown by the peasants also worked in their favor. Such people were, after all, much too ignorant to look after the fruits of their labor. Somewhere along the line, the idea of built great buildings became a thing. I suspect these began as more accurate astronomical tools of the priests or granaries run by armed men. No doubt the brutes were impressed by their knowledge and wished to contribute to it with such erections. It wasn't they who would be doing the hard labor in, the, in building them, so why not? Though much of this work was done under the lash, large portions were motivated through the, through the manipulation of mines. 
Religion is a powerful tool for gaining compliance. Those under its control may go along out of personal conviction or through intense social pressure, but comply they do. Church and state would like people to think they have power over us even after death. Building monuments in Samaria or Egypt or the cathedrals of Europe were likely done with that in mind. Having the chance to work on these great long-lasting structures could give them momentary peace and great rewards in the afterlife. Generally not discussed are the benefits to priest or ruler. Often both titles were held by the same person. These mammoth projects became synonymous with the contemporary ruler and his descendants. This history contains a long string of dynasties. We could see how the egos of self-appointed elite were sated. It's no wonder that construction of this type occurs in both the central and regional seats of power. There are visual reminders to the little people of just how little they are. We see it today in the federal style in Washington, D.C., and in state and federal buildings throughout the country. We see it in the Palace of Versailles or St. Petersburg, Russia. There are no records indicating the number worked to death by Peter the Great. The city was carved from a vast malarial swamp, which is seldom discussed. That government is little more than thuggery with a religious veneer is self-evident. If you don't comply with prevailing groupthink, you will be forced by the secular authorities. How is the Pledge of Allegiance any different than a prayer? Great buildings quite often serve the purpose of both religious center and treasury. This was the case for the Acropolis in Athens and the temple in Jerusalem. In the case of the temple, Vespasian and Titus targeted the site for destruction as a political and religious seat. With so much praise for the Colosseum in Rome, little noted is that construction costs were paid by looting Jerusalem. Extensive reliefs on Vespasian's victory arch detail his attempted at genocide in Judea, along with the plunder. You celebrate a center for torture and death created from the ashes of another culture. Perhaps these lasting structures serve more as social centers or public works of some kind. The Giza Pyramid Complex, with its extensive labyrinth of tunnels through the, through the bedrock over 100 feet below, similar tunnels run throughout Saqqara. Why do scholars insist these can only be tombs or temples? I've been to Giza, seen the Sphinx, and explored the insides of the pyramids. I've also been to Luxor, the Valley of the Kings. This was some time ago, and I was not aware of the extensive tunnels or structures on the plateau, which are of equal interest to me now. With hindsight, I will say I do not believe the Great Pyramid or those nearby are tombs. There are plenty of tombs in the Valley of the Kings. It should be noted that no mummies or grave goods were ever found in the pyramids at Giza or Saqqara, even if there had been anything there. Both lacked the elaborate decoration, which is common in the other tombs. Common to both sites is evidence of much finer craftsmanship than what we know was possible in the Bronze Age. There is substantial evidence of higher technology upon which later peoples claimed as their own then removed material, refurbished, or simply built atop what had been abandoned. From my research, this is common throughout many parts of the world, from the Middle East and Egypt, the Mediterranean, and South America, and even Japan.
The older massive hard granite blocks were not quarried in Lower Egypt, at Giza or Saqqara. They were moved there from Aswan, 500 miles away, or perhaps Turkey. Cutting and drilling such rock at a hardness of seven or higher with such precision was not possible for us until the late 19th or early 20th century with diamond-encrusted tools. The 30 to 40,000 stone vessels found at Saqqara could only have been made with sophisticated machinery and similar tools. The Giza and Saqqara sites, to me, resemble massive public projects on the scale of a dam or other waterworks. What comes to mind is Hoover Dam, the Corinth Canal, or the great Victorian sewage pumping station in London, which features elaborate decoration of two gigantic steam engines. Though the insides of the pyramids and tunnels are undecorated, the outsides were once cased in gleaming white limestone. Legend has it a tetrahedral capstone of gold topped each of the pyramids. When the Washington Monument was completed, the capstone of pure aluminum was placed at the top. At the time, smelting a quantity of even small amounts of this common metal was costly and difficult. So there appears to be some continuity between the gleaming white Giza pyramids, the great marble buildings of Greece and Rome, the cathedrals of Europe, and what we see in Washington, D.C. today. The federal style is used for a multitude of buildings, from the Capitol to the White House, State Department, Lincoln and Jefferson memorials, etc. We would like to say they were public works, but they're merely built with monies stolen from that public and a means to steal more. The general purpose of these grandiose structures is the same, however. The aim here is intimidation, to inspire awe as a visible reminder of who is boss. On the propaganda side, the message is for you to feel like you're a part of something bigger, which, whether it is Egypt, Babylon, Rome, the British Empire, or the United States of America. For those fully engaged with their captors, a la Stockholm Syndrome, they will vehemently defend their masters and state of servitude. This is akin to a battered spouse who defends his or her abuser, no matter what a tyrant does to anyone. As most scholars are supported by governments, they are not likely to bite the hands that feed them. Perhaps the ties between religion and government, or government as a stand-in for religion, is not surprising. Not antagonizing them and towing the party line is in their best interest for survival. The Roman Empire is an excellent example for intentional blurring of the lines between religion and government. Seldom discussed is the imperial cult of Rome. A large part of Rome's success came from the assimilation of cultures. This included their gods and customs. Temples were established or co-opted in the conquered territories. Roman gods were placed alongside the local gods. Nowhere is this more apparent than in Greece, but it goes back as far as Carthage. Either the local gods were included or the Roman equivalent was slowly substituted, as in Jupiter versus Zeus. Rome really didn't care as long as the monies collected in the temple went to their priests. In time, emperors such as Augustus and all the Julian lines save Nero were made gods by the Senate. Gods, of course, were represented by statues found in these temples. The imperial cult grew up around the deification 
of Roman emperors. Along with this, Rome insisted on placing statues of them in local temples. This practice backfired resoundingly in Judea, where insinuation of outside gods was strictly forbidden and the statues were considered idols. Judea and Israel guarded their religion and culture far more than any Romans encountered previously. They successfully removed the Seleucids from their midst in the Maccabee Rebellion and brought back self-rule for over a century. The uprisings under the Seleucids and later under the Romans were also tax revolts. So the Romans failed to get their religious foot in the door and the tax farmers were a scourge. Things went from bad to worse. Unrest occurred from the beginning of the Roman occupation into the main Jewish revolt from 66 to 73 BC with the Bar Kokhba revolt from 132 to 135 CE. This gave the Romans an excuse for demolishing the temple in order to drive home their dominance. As far back as anyone can remember, the so-called learned men were mostly in the pocket of individual patrons or government. This was the case in Rome as it is today. We shouldn't be surprised by mainstream archaeologists who stick to their story that the pyramids were built in dynastic Egypt with nothing better than copper tools for cutting granite. Those structures had to be built by pharaohs, or rather, those under the physical or psychological control of pharaohs. To say such marvels may have come from a prior or more sophisticated people is tantamount to losing control. Perish the thought there were and are humans of much greater capability and wisdom than kings, presidents, potentates, or pharaohs. Yet we know there were cultures in history thriving through means other than conquest and intimidation. These might be the Mycenaeans, the Carthaginians, or their forerunners, the Phoenicians. In South America, they would be the Wari. These are people with advanced societies that prevailed through trade rather than plunder and war. These were builders rather than pillagers. We could safely say that today's scholars derive their livelihood from the pillagers so they cannot be insulted directly. I hope you've enjoyed this program, written and presented by author Michael James Sharon, in conjunction with my many science fiction novels. Please visit the website, michaelsbookcorner.com, to see what is on offer. A complimentary ebook is available for joining the mailing list. This podcast is available on most outlets such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audible, Anchor FM, Amazon, and also on YouTube under the playlist Science or Fiction. Look for the host on Instagram, medium.com, or Twitter under at classic underscore sci underscore phi. Thank you.